we're going to read through Jeremiah chapter 30 to verse chapter 31, verse 1. Okay, we're just going to sing verse one, the first verse of chapter 31. Uh, really, I really need to read chapters 30, 31, 32 all together, um, but that would take quite a while this morning, so we're going to read chapter 30 and we're going to start into chapter 31 for this week and next week. So Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's word declares, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations, where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice." and will not let you go altogether unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. All who prey upon you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion. No one seeks her. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me? Says the Lord. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, and continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days you will consider it. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Well, this morning we enter into an exciting passage of uh, Jeremiah. As I told you some weeks ago, we have transitioned from Jeremiah seeking to call Judah to repentance in order to avoid the coming catastrophe into a time when the catastrophe really already had happened. It hadn't fully happened. There was still uh, out of the three times that uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and sacks Jerusalem. We still have one to go 
at the point of Moses' writing, but many of the best and brightest have already been taken away to Babylon, Daniel and his friends among them. Um, and so we, we come down to a period of time that uh, Jeremiah is going to focus, as many of the prophets do, wants to focus on Israel's distant future. And that distant future so far has been just 70 years out. You're going to stay there for 70 years. God's going to preserve you um, in the land of Babylon. And then you'll be gathered here together back in Jerusalem. But also when we talk about distant, the prophets weren't just concerned about that future, where it's just a generation away. They wanted to also know about another future, and that was when the Messiah would come. And yet a further out future, which is when the Messiah would rule and reign over Israel and Judah. And Jeremiah is now called upon by God to turn his attention to that period of time. And so we are going to see a reference to the Messiah and that God will raise him up out of David's seed. And that's going to be here in Jeremiah 30. Um, But all the focus really for Jeremiah uh, is going to be on that end times, the latter days. Uh, And not the latter days of Jeremiah or of of, uh, this uh, period of Israel, but rather the latter days of the earth. Um, certainly what's encompassed in our reading in Jeremiah 30, we see very quickly, is not only about Judah, which is what the predominant amount of Jeremiah is written toward, um, but also is inclusive of Israel. It is also inclusive of all the nations. And so we are talking about the last days. When you hear that term, in the latter days, at the end of this chapter, we're really talking about the last days. Uh, And much like God has done through other prophets in our study, the minor prophets on Sunday night, we saw that, uh, where God would suddenly interject something. He says, this isn't for right now. This isn't for immediately. Uh, This isn't even for something you could foresee. This is way down the line in the latter days. And that was true for Habakkuk. That was true for Daniel. For others, just close the book. It's not really for you to understand, but I do want you to get it in writing so that someone will understand when it's necessary for them to understand it fully. And this portion of Jeremiah is very similar to that. And so we have God coming along and saying, now Jeremiah, I want you to write down this. It's not really for you. It's not really for the captives in Babylon. It's really not for this generation or the next. I want you to write it down so that it is there and available. And it's kind of interesting because God makes it evident that he will preserve this prophetic word until it's needed in the last days. And that goes along with our Sunday night study right now uh, on the preservation of the scriptures as it's been brought to us. So we have um, an opportunity now to look into days that are still future to us. And so this is a very exciting two or three chapters tucked in here. Um, And you'll see that um, God has some Very powerful things to say, some very disturbing things that we don't often think about. And and, uh, it's not in our hymnody. Uh, We just don't have a lot in our singing of the end times that is balanced. Let's put it like that. We always sing about heaven, about rewards, about rest, ease, mansions, peace, light, all those kinds of things. And uh, we have kind of painted a rosy picture out there because we have been a little spiritually blind to what happens between now and that rosy picture. Um, And so we want to have eyes wide open to recognize that God didn't have that approach in his prophetic word ever, that we're just going to coast into uh, eternity, but rather that there is... um, some final aspects of his justice that must be met um, before that time. And as we get into the study, let's go, Lord, in prayer together, first of all. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word before us. And we are excited to get into a passage that speaks about what is not historical, but future for us. And and, uh, Lord, it is very easy than to introduce our own ideas and our own desires into here. And Lord, guard us from this. And we might 
understand your word, that we might allow it to impact our lives, and that we might be ready, not only for that day of accountability before your face at the judgment seat of Christ, but that we might be ready for the darkness of that time when evil seems to be winning before the dawn of your coming. And Lord, we pray you might give us courage to be willing to approach a passage such as this with eyes wide open to the fullness and the balance of your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have in a very brief declaration uh, in verse 3 of what God's intent is that he's going to expand upon throughout the next three chapters. He has been told, as we said in verse 2, to write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. And now comes this encapsulation of what God's full intent is going to be. What is the, the final uh, expectation of Israel and God's plan and it says, I'll bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah. And I'll cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. So there is a hope. There is a future. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, and that it will be a time when they call upon him, and uh, God will answer to them. And they will see him. They will engage in him. And in fact, as we get into chapter 31 and follow, we're going to find that God says, I'm going to have a whole different covenant with you. I'm going to replace the old one with a brand spanking new one that is so superior to that one. And we're going to be tying into Hebrews. We're going to be tying into some other facets of that when we get to the next chapter. But God here is saying, overall, here's what I want. And again, we find Israel and Judah. That God doesn't just have a plan for Judah, but for all of his people, all 12 tribes. That he intends to bring them back. He intends to to implement all of this with respect to them. And we are again beginning to see this happen in our age, in our lifetimes. For many of us, um, when we are born, this wasn't even something that, that we could imagine happening. And yet here it is full-blown now before us. And we find that God says, I'm going to bring Israel out. I'm going to bring Judah out of captivity. I'm going to gather them together. This is my intent. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people is what we saw at chapter 31, verse 1. And so these two verses kind of give us an encapsulation, encapsulation of what God's intent is. They're going to be in the land. They're going to be recovered from all the people. I will be their God. They will be my people. And while we are seeing some of this happening, we recognize right away, well, it's not really like what we think of in terms, and it's not. And it shouldn't be because God said it shouldn't be that way. There are some intermittent uh, aspects that we need to look at, some, some things that are going to come, and, and then it seems like it's one way, and then it's not, and then it's another way, and then it's not. So we're going to see exciting things happening with Israel and Judah being gathered out of the nations, but we're also going to see that almost interposed with aspects of God's judgment and oppression and the nations being against her, that she's still going to be imprisoned, really, by them. And, yet, and then we're going to see, well, God's going to bless them, even in the land, and then we're going to find God judging them and purifying them, and then we're going to find them being ruled by him by choice. And so we're going to find this in and out and in and out, and it's not just going to be this smooth glide right into eternity, but rather we find a very jaggedy road. And so God wants to lay it out ahead of time, and he puts these statements out there. Here's my overall plan. Now I'm going to help you understand how it has to happen. And it has to happen this way. And so we find... Um, that, well, this is exciting. You can almost imagine Jeremiah sitting down saying, God's got a wonderful plan. There's hope. There's a future. He's going to tell me what it is. I can't wait to write it down. Okay, God, I'm ready. Uh, and he's going to say, men are going to be in severe pain. <laughs> That's the first thing you get to hear. They're going to be in the pain of childbearing. 
The first thing we find out, now all the gals here who have had children uh, are going, yeah, it's about time. Um, <laughs> it's payback. Um, it's this whole idea that we start off with an understanding of, of the latter days, the, the end times, and we always think of them as these wonderful things, and we think, well, the rapture's the next thing, and, and, and for the Christian community, very probably, and, and I would teach that. I have taught that. Um, but for Israel, for the nations, for humanity at large, that is just not the case. We do not start off in Revelation with this wonderful thing happening, but rather we find horrible things happening. And in fact, even before we have the description of people arriving in heaven, the first thing we find in the description of the arrival of the Son of Man on earth is men in complete anguish at the sight of God in the heavens. That they are running to the mountains and say, please fall on us. We'd rather die than endure this. And this is what Jeremiah begins with. That God starts talking about the latter days by talking about the pain and the travail that is going to happen on the earth as it approaches. And so there's a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. The men will say peace and safety, but God says, no, sudden destruction is at hand. It is not peace and safety that we see next on the horizon, but rather what is next is going to be sudden destruction while men are scurrying around trying to cause peace and cause safety outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. Sudden destruction comes upon them, and we find trembling, fear. This is not an aspect of what men are doing to each other, but rather of what God has intent for them. And he compares it. And as many times, several times, I shouldn't say many, several times, um, the coming of the Lord is compared to childbearing. That as we get nearer and nearer, the pangs get stronger and stronger, um, and the pain increases and so here he is using that, that similar analogy, and now he's saying that that isn't just for women. This is the men are going to have this. Every man, hands on his loins, like a woman in labor, and all their faces have turned pale. They have seen something. They are recognizing something is true that they have denied for generations. And that is that there is one God in heaven, and he will come and announce himself in the sky first of all. And the Bible says when men see his faces, they will run and want to die, but death will not be available to them. And ladies, is that pretty much what it's like having birth? I just want to die, but I can't. I got to give birth. And so faces are pale. They are realizing we have made a horrible mistake and it is really just too late. And here comes the horror of God's judgment. Verse 7 says, alas, and that is a very strong Hebrew term. Alas. Oh, don't want to be around for this. All of us want to be around for the rapture. Um, but when you hear its beginning of its description as alas, you go, what am I thinking? For that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. And this is the technical term that we use for the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath on the earth, and that is the time of Jacob's trouble. Many in our modern Christendom, and I mean modern since about 1905, 1900s, uh, we have used the word tribulation to refer to the seven-year period. The Bible doesn't use that term to refer to it. We have in the last hundred and so years. The Bible's term for this is the time of Jacob's trouble and the outpouring of God's wrath or his fury. And so that's the technical term for a period of time where God is doing some very 
harsh things in our mind, um, and yet some miraculous things in the midst of it. And you say, how can they both happen? But Jeremiah 30 describes it intimately. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is a time when all men on earth will be in anguish. And yet it also, in the midst of all of that, God is going to preserve them. Somehow, many of them, a large part of the nation of Israel, will survive through these seven years. Then in the midst of all this judgment, we also have a hand guarding it. It says he will be saved out of it, out of this time of Jacob's trouble, a time unlike any time before it. And so in preparation for the kingdom of God on earth, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, over not only Israel, but all the nations where he rules with a rod of iron, all the nations, we find that in preparation for that, there is this time of horror for the true outpouring of God's wrath. And let's just set that in perspective a little bit, what that means. The outpouring of God's wrath are events like the Genesis flood. It is like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is of that nature where we have a wholesale loss of life, destruction in terms that, that until the nuclear age men were incapable of, maybe with the volcanic activity, earthquake activity, but the descriptions there are going to outpace any of that. And yes, it's going to make our atomic age seem puny compared to what God's going to be doing. It is going to be a time like no other time. And in the midst of that, while men are pale and in anguish and want to die but cannot, Israel says, will be saved out of it. Somehow Israel will be preserved. You might say, oh, they're the blessed of God. Well, yes, but as the children of God, they need to be purified before they are ready to receive their Messiah. You see, at this point where Christ has already come, and by the way, that is our catching up with him in the clouds. He doesn't come all the way to the earth. So what he has described here is that when men have seen Jesus in the sky, they're going to have this kind of anguish, this kind of realization of how wrong they were. And how desperately, without hope is desperately, uh, without hope they are. This anguish isn't just physical. This is a spiritual anguish. Can you imagine seeing in the clouds the one you have denied existed all of your life and your father's life and your grandfather's life? And there he is. In addition to the sixth seal breaking open and all the cataclysm that happens on earth, you have that upon your spirit and heart, and there they are in complete anguish. And so we are caught away to another purifying judgment, by the way, judgment seat of Christ, to examine whether the things you've done in the flesh were of any value at all. So you're not completely out of this at this point, by the way. But here comes the justice of God. And Israel's a nation. We find her in the land. She's been gathered from the nations. But the nations are still against her. Look at it. Read with me. It shall come to pass in that day, verse 8, says the Lord of hosts, that will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I raise up for them. And this is the reference to Jesus Christ. There is a king out of the line of David that God will specially raise up during his time. We know that to be Jesus. And you might say there's a big gap between when God raises him up for the deliverance and God places him as king. And yes, that is true. But the focus of most of the Old Testament prophets was on the kingship of Christ uh, others are more focused on the messianic nature of Christ, but this is one of his kingship. And so the kingship facet comes into play much more adamantly, much more forcefully 
in the millennial reign of Christ. And so God is getting his people ready. They've seen him in the sky, realized, what have we done? We've been denying that Jesus was a Jew even. We've been denying the Messiah. We're afraid to read the New Testament because we think it's a lie and uh, it will stop being Jews if we read it. And here's the Jewish community has also seen Jesus in the sky. And for them, they are the only ones that still have some hope. Because they need to survive seven years of horrific life to be able to see him again when he comes back and sets foot on the earth and establishes his reign in Jerusalem. Then, the Bible tells us, all Israel will be saved. All Israel that has survived will turn to him and say, well, we learned our lesson and we have been purified and here we are. You are king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and we will bow the knee. Then Israel will bow the knee. But the first time they come, oh no, they're still in the same rebellion. They're gathered. God has prepared them, but they haven't bowed the knee at the beginning of the seven years. They bow the knee somewhere in the midst of it, and then really it's not until the midpoint when they realize we're, they're still trusting in man for three and a half years of the seven years of the outpouring of God's wrath. They're trusting in a man that we know as Antichrist, but he is the man of sin. They're trusting in him for three and a half years, for half of it until he puts the abomination of desolation in the temple where it doesn't belong. Then they realize, oh man, we are stupid. We're in deep trouble. We have put all of our eggs in the very most wrong basket there is. And now they are hunted people by the nations. And so God is declaring this. He is forewarning them. But he tells them in the end of verse 7, Jacob will be saved. All Israel will be saved out of it. Verse 8, sorry, verse 10 uh, therefore, do not, be, do not fear, my servant Jacob says, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar. Your seed from the land of their captivity, Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. So we have, again, this promise of what the end is. So we're going to keep jumping back and forth from this purging period, this outpouring of wrath, to don't be afraid, endure it, Learn from it, let it purify you, because on the other side of it is rest, is peace, is all the things that I've promised you, an eternal covenant that's unlike any other covenant. But you've got to get through this period, and he's warning them that it's coming. He's also going to tell us what its purpose is. First of all, he is going to debilitate and destroy the nations. Not in terms of them not existing anymore, but having no authority anymore. When he says that I'm going to make a full end, verse 11, of all nations where I have scattered you, I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. He is dealing with the nations. And it might be easy to just lump Israel in with all the other nations, but God separates them, he, he consecrates them, sets them apart um, so that he's going to deal with them in a very unique and special manner even as he is destroying the nations and they see it. They see his work against the nations. Well, what are they going to see? Well, we have that described for us very clearly by Jesus in Matthew 24, uh, by uh, the apocalypse there, by John in, in the seven trumpets. They're going to see these things, disaster after disaster after disaster just debilitating the nations, and of course ultimately coming to the battle of Armageddon where God simply crushes them. But in the midst of watching God deal with the nations, they're like, oh man, what is he going to do to us? When, when it's our turn, what is he going to do to us? He says, don't be afraid. I have a plan for you. But while I'm crushing the nations, while I'm destroying them, recognize that I'm also going to correct you. And there is a difference between God and the nations and God and Israel during the seven years. There are two things happening on earth between Israel and the nations. The nations are being decimated. Israel is being corrected. 
God has taken them and shaken them up a little bit and saying, you have sinned against me. And it is now the time to purify yourselves. And the fire that destroys the nations purifies God's people. And that is a principle that I believe still holds true all through the ages for all who call themselves by the name of Christ. The fires that destroy the wicked purify the righteous. And yes, even for us, as we approach the latter days, we need to recognize God is setting up the nations to fall. And what should we expect? Well, the Bible says that they have to fill up their sin. Well, does that sound to you like it's going to get less or more? To me, it sounds like the world's going to sin more. They've got to fill it up, get all the way to the brim. Well, we already have one ex- one or two examples I've already used out of the Old Testament when we know that God got fed up. That's enough. You're full. It's over. And how does the world, how does God describe the world before the flood? It was filled with class violence. Men did what was right in their own eyes, but one of the direct things it says is the world was filled with violence. Sound familiar? What should we be expecting? Violence. Because it is the consummation of evil societally. It is filled with violence. What was Sodom and Gomorrah filled with? I know, first of all, we want to say homosexuality and immorality, but realize what they were willing to do. They were going to do violence against Lot and his home if they hadn't been blinded and couldn't find it anymore by the visitors he had. So we have the immoral men doing this right in their own eyes and the violence, and we look around ourselves and say, well, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, violence. The surprise is the two-fistedness of the Extent of sin among society. Gross immorality and violence. So are we surprised? I hope not. Are we taken aback and, and doing this and go, oh, what's going to happen? Well, we already know what's going to happen. God has declared what is going to happen, and it's going to get worse. Are you ready? for that fire. It will either consume you and destroy you if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ or it will purify you and you will recognize I cannot be a part of this world. I cannot be a part of this world. I cannot buy into anything they offer for it all leads to immorality and violence. I cannot be a part of this world. I must separate myself unto righteousness. I must put my thoughts upon things above and not things of the earth. I must meditate on things that are excellent and praiseworthy and and the whole list there, Philippians, and, and oh, that we would meld ourselves to that concept that we are not of this world. And if there's anything that should do that, that should make us like Noah, and maybe I'm the last righteous on the planet, but I'm going to, me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Maybe you're the lot in your town who grieves at the gate every day over the wickedness that he saw. Does this characterize us? Are we like, how can I get involved without the church finding out? How can I get involved without compromising myself. Well, you can't. Period. You cannot. You must choose whom you'll serve. Period. And so the fire that's going to destroy the nations God intends to purify his people. And yes, this will be coming a time of purification where you're going to have to suffer loss or deny your Christ.
where it's going to be a detriment to be a member of this church. Not an asset as you move around this culture. So far, in some places here, it's a benefit. I'm going to give you two examples. I rented a mixer trailer Wednesday to do concrete up at the Bahamas. And just talking to the gentleman, he said, well, you have to bring it back. I said, well, you're not open on Sundays. I don't have to bring it back that day, do I? He's like, no. I says, good, because I'm going to be preaching, and I won't be using it, and I'll bring it back first thing Monday morning. He says, and immediately gives me 10% off of the rental because I'm a pastor going to church on Sunday. We say, that's the way it should be. Well, that's the South Valley. (laughs) But try dealing with a bank. Because we had a bank that denied me a loan because of one reason. This church meets on this property. That's what we're talking about. So yes, on an individual level where you have engagement with individuals, you have opportunity. But as society, the defining elements of society, and whether you think it's politics or not, you're wrong. It's bankers and such uh, that are running everything, and they're saying, no way, no way. And that's going to be the norm. And that's what we're moving to. And we should be expecting it. It will purify us. Are you serious about this? Or are you just playing the game? Because if you're playing the game, you're going to be consumed by it. You're going to deny it and you're going to turn away and there will be no hope. For Christ is the only hope. Are you prepared for God to purify you? It says, God says, I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. That if we act like, dress like, talk like, behave like the world, and in every facet, there's no difference between us and the world, and we have grown accustomed to it, and just kind of coast along with the world, God says, I'm going to have to correct that. I'm not going to let that go unpunished. And the Christians that think we're just going to lapse after the Rapture, the rapture is going to happen. We're just going to lapse into this wonderful condition. I failed to see that even in the period before God's destruction of the nations, he will purify his people. And he does that by bringing serious opposition against her to find out who are the ones who will truly trust him and follow after him, feeling secure that God will take care of us. Or who will just throw up their hands and say, oh, it's no use being a Christian. I'm going to stop that nonsense. And there's plenty of those around. Some who used to sit where you were sitting. And so God warned Israel, I'm going to correct you. I am going to have to punish you. And in fact, I'm going to punish you with something that's not curable. And for several verses, he talks about how hard it's going to be for Israel during these seven years, that there's nothing they can do, there's nothing they can say, there's not, no remedy available. The nations will hate them, they will be a blight on the earth, things will be hard for them, period. And we are already seeing an attitude nationally, internationally, um, of just that. Go to the United Nations, look at their records, and see how many times they've condemned Israel. And then compare that and contrast that to how many times they have condemned the Palestinians or the Iranians or the Iraqis or the Syrians or Hezbollah. And you will find that Israel will outnumber them all together. How many times the nations have said, Israel's bad, doing bad things. We're reprimanding them. The only democracy, <laughs> the only ones like us in the, nation, in the region. And so we find that here Israel is still in this condition and it's incurable. There's nothing they can do. Why? 
First of all, the reason that this has to come upon them to purify them is because of their own sin. Their iniquities have increased, so the chastisement has to increase. The, the, the affliction is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, verse 15, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. God uses the fire to purify sin out of his people. And again, if you are not his people, it is there to destroy you, to crush you. When we see those that encounter opposition, encounter choices, either I have to follow the Lord or be like the world, and I don't want to have any shame, I don't want to have any problems, I don't want to have to deal with all that, and they knuckle under and they deny the Lord and be like the world, we say the fire did not purify them because they were not his to begin with. They have crushed them. Because that's the purpose. And either we can sit and complain against God or we can recognize it is the multitude of our iniquities and sins that have increased. God has caused these things to purify us and our response is not to blame him and add sin to sin, but to repent. That's what God calls us to, as his people, to purify ourselves. And so in the midst of that aspect God is still dealing with the nations that way, or Israel that way, but even throughout that seven years, he's still dealing with the nations, and the judgments keep pouring onto them. And he says, I'm gonna, the devourer is going to be devoured. I'm going to destroy them. I know I used them to make your life miserable, to purify you because you're too much like them. But now they're going to get it again, and we find when we come to verse 16, those who devour you shall be devoured. Your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you will become plunder. Those who prey upon you, I'll make a prey. And then the very blessedness, you endure, you get through this, you sanctify yourself, you set yourself apart from them and identify Then I will come and heal you. That again, dark, dark, dark period, rescue is at the end. What you do during that darkness, during that intense season of purification, of fire, how you respond, God says, if you will simply allow it to purify you and trust in me and do not fear and do not uh, deny me, if you persist in the New Testament terms, if you stand fast, at the end, I'll heal you. Simply accept correction as a child from a loving father. even when it seems like the father isn't very loving while he's doing it. I, I got a lot of discipline as a kid, all right, because I was bad. I, I got whooped all the time. I had a loud mouth, sassy mouth, I should say. It wasn't, well, it was kind of loud. I had a sassy mouth. I had rebellion in my heart. I had a mom with a short temper, and those clashed all the time. And so I got whooped constantly. And it's recognizing that right then I said some horrible things like, I hate you because you beat on me. But I couldn't say that when I became an adult because I recognized that that discipline was because of my sin. Because I can look back now and say, well, that was rebellion. That was disobedience. That was sin. I wasn't honoring my parents. And so I declared some things that then I recognized that not only did they correct me, they fed me, they clothed me, they, they made sure I was educated, they cared for me, they prayed for me, they took me to church, they did everything uh, they knew to do. And so we honor them. And this is as a mature people, we can come to the fire and recognize God is purifying us. He is not seeking to destroy me. I do not need to be afraid of this. I need to recognize that I need to walk righteously in an ungodly age, looking for my blessed hope and glorious appearing of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God keeps giving him 
Keep enduring. There's healing at the end. Keep enduring. There's my promises at the end. Keep enduring. There'll be peace at the end. Just keep enduring it. But recognize that enduring isn't just stubbornness. It's about a willingness to be refined by it. To let it purify you. To say we're going to get this out of our life. And for seven years for the nation of Israel, um, they're going to have that opportunity to purify themselves as a people to say, what were we thinking following after this guy who just desecrated our temple? What were we thinking? And now we're the hunted people on earth again. And they're running. Or be slaughtered. They see 144,000 of them just mowed down. And they purify themselves. And they say, oh, Lord, we're waiting for your coming now. We missed, we're blinded to it. We refuse to acknowledge it. And God says, I will bring you back. Another time, I'll bring you back and establish your tents It says, I'm going to have the city be built upon its own mound. The palace remain according to its own plan. Verse 18, 19 now. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving. And a voice of those who make merry, I will multiply them. They shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. As God brings them into the land. By the way, on a small basis, this is already the case. And in the millennial kingdom, it will be prevalent. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about have sons, have daughters, have grandchildren. Um, For Israel, it was important that as soon as they got into the land, once God gathered them, he said, I will make you large again. And it is no mistaking what's going on in Israel today as one of the few nations on earth whose birth rate is dramatically increasing while all the other nations, pretty much, birth rate is decreasing. Except for like Niger, Nigeria. They're just making kids like crazy. And so we find this expectation that they will have children, they will be established, um, and all the other nations will be punished. And as we draw to this close of these time of God's, of Jacob's trouble, where God is correcting her injustice, something's going to happen. He will be their God. They will be his people. Verse 22. They have pledged their heart to God. And that happened in verse 21. Who is this that approaches but the one who pledges his heart to me? They have pledged their heart to God. At the end of this seven years of the outpouring of the fury of the Lord, like a whirlwind he talks about, that's going to be, uh, in verses 23 and following, that it's going to be violence, it's going to be anger, it's going to be uh, the outpouring of it upon the nations, and Israel will have to endure in the midst of it, even while we will be uh, taken away from it, because we are saved from wrath, and they are going to be saved in the midst of it, to last to that hour, and God says, you pledge your heart to me. Now I'm your king. You'd rejected me and crucified me. You ignored me and pretended I was, didn't exist, then you saw me. And now seven years will you pledge your heart to me. And those that pledge their heart to him will be those of Israel for 1,000 years of a millennial kingdom and then into the new earth for eternity. This is the promise of God. Why should we expect anything different to happen than what he has described happening? When all the other prophecies of Jeremiah came to fruition just as it was spoken. And so we see wondrous things happening. Israel gathered from the nations and we see the nations opposed to her and, and we don't wring our hands at that. We say, well, that's exactly what we're supposed to happen. We see violence and immorality around us, circumventing us in this world, and, and we should not be dismayed. We should say, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. And the question we should be asking is, what am I to do and be in response to things happening that God said would happen? 
What am I to do? What am I to be in such a time as this? For these things were written for us, for Israel in that day, not long from now, when they will have to go to their scriptures and say, this is what he meant. We're being purified. He's coming back. We're going to get him back as our king. And they will come to passages like Jeremiah 30, and they will recognize what's happening. But we of the church can come here and learn the principle and from other passages recognize, well, that's kind of, we're going to go through the same kind of thing a little bit before Israel. And that is true. Hence the statement, when Christ comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will you endure the fire to purify you or will you be destroyed by it because you've denied the one who is our hope? That response is up to you. God will do what he must do in justice. He is not unfaithful. He is faithful. But he is just. And that doesn't mean making your life easy. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be rosy for you. It means that you're going to have hardship and difficulty to purge you, to purify you, that you might come forth as gold, yea, fine gold, for his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your promises. And while we sing about them and focus on them, and they are precious and they're wonderful, and they're encouraging, we also see the balance in your word, the warning, that there will be a fiery trial ere we get there. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be strengthened today by the knowledge that you are at work, that you are not dumbfounded by any of this, that you are not weakened by it, but that you can preserve those that you wish in the midst of any adversity, even that of your own hand. And so, Lord, our trust is in you, not in men. Our trust is in you and not in nations. Our trust is in you and not in banks. Our trust is in you. To keep us till that day. And we thank you for the fires. We pray that we might allow them to purify our hearts. To stand away. And not be counted among the heathen, in our thoughts, in our words, in our appearance, in our attitudes, in our activities. We might give you our whole heart to your praise and glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.